Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography and technology. I'm Kirk McElhern. And I'm Jeff Carlson. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. Today, we're happy to welcome Mike Hipple. Mike is a photographer in Seattle, not far from where Jeff is, the land of plentiful coffee. And Mike has published a couple of books of portraits of musicians, and we're talking to him about his latest one, I Lived Through That, 90s Musicians Today. Mike, thank you for joining us. Uh, Thanks for having me. Uh, Just one quick correction, though. The book is Lived Through That, not I Lived Through That, even though I did live through it, but it's just just lived through that. You, you know what? The picture on your website has two copies of the book overlapping, oh. and a quick glance makes it look like the L on the bottom one is the – okay, so lived through yes. that. We'll leave that in. Don't edit that out because that's actually um, – <laughs> it is important to get titles right and pronounce names right and all that. I want to start by saying – I looked through this book. Now, I'm really into music. I do a music podcast. Um, I've been a music fan since I grew up in New York. Um, You know, the 1970s in New York was great. And I looked through this book, and I have to say, I don't know a single musician in it. And (laughs) this is really interesting because I left New York in 1984 to go live in France for a year, and I ended up staying there for almost 30 years. At that point, I lost touch with the music scene. French radio, even now, I think, has a quota of 50% French pop music. I don't know if you like French pop music. I don't. So I never listened to the radio. And I would go to like indie stores and I would buy, you know, factory records things occasionally. But it was like 15 years of music that I missed. And it was all the 90s that I just don't know. I did recognize one band name in the book, um, Nirvana, Nirvana, (laughs) something like that. Small little local band, yeah. (laughs) Right, little local (laughs) Seattle band. But I don't know any of the musicians. Whereas in your 80s book, when I looked at some of the samples on your website, it's like, sure, I know them. B-52s and, you know, all these bands that I knew in New York. So I looked at this book in a different way than someone who knows the music, because I was looking that here's photos of musicians. I'm not pre, my my point of view isn't predetermined by knowing the musicians and knowing that that guy used to have safety pins in his ears or whatever. Um, And it's kind of interesting because it let me get into the book the way Maybe some people will, but anyone who's into music, which is more likely the people who buy it, are going to know all the these. These are all really well known musicians. No, they're not all really well known. There's quite there's a there's a handful that are pretty well known. You know, like Chris Novoselic like from Nirvana, the guy from Corner Shop. There's um, Belly Tiny Donnelly from Belly is in there. Uh, there are quite a few bands that, that are a little bit more under the radar, um, which is why in the like in the '90s book, I put I did put like a sidebar on the side there. For, for somebody like you who may not necessarily know those musicians, but here's like some of their hit songs. Here's some deeper cuts. And the reason I did that is because on the 80s book, I actually had kind of the opposite experience. I had lots of people look through, flip through it and say, oh, I don't really know these bands. And then I would mention a couple of songs and be like, oh, yeah, that band, that band. So I, I kind of wanted to jog people's memory there a little bit to, uh, and give them a place to go if they if they don't know the artist. Yeah. Yeah, we're a different generation, so our musical experience is different. Even though you probably know a lot of the music I grew up with because it's older and you heard it anyway, um, it's kind of weird. And I say this on my music podcast that I've just missed music and movies and TV. I've never seen an episode of Seinfeld. Um, I've never watched The Simpsons. Like, and and now it's become a badge of honor to say, "Well, I'm not going to watch Seinfeld or The Simpsons (laughs) or Friends because you know it's it's like what was the movie where the guy fell asleep for ten years and then woke up? Wasn't there a 
not not the Rip Van Winkle, but there was a movie like what's anyway. It's kind of like that sometimes. <laughs> yeah, you missed the whole decade. <laughs> was it a good decade? The '90s uh, for me, it was a good decade. But <laughs> okay, well, you were a fan, so you were drinking wine and eating cheese, and that was that's been great. Exactly. <laughs> That was a good decade, yeah. Um, I also want to jump in real quickly here and just uh, for people who, who don't know the book, um, we'll have a link in the show notes obviously. But um, the the idea of the book is Mike went and photographed a lot of these musicians present day. So this isn't like a retrospective of him uh, shooting during the 90s. This was catching up with people and finding out you know what they're up to now, what they've been doing and, and making portraits of them – as they are today, which I think is a really important consideration because you know, one of the reasons why I love this book and I love this this idea is that we talk a lot about having a photo project, having some sort of a target rather than just sort of shooting whatever you want to do. And this is like a target on a completely different level. Part of what I'm dying to know is like how did this get started? Did you just wake up one day and say, hey, I'm just going to go find these people? Do you already know some of them from from you know your time in the 90s? That kind of stuff. So uh, to be honest with you, I am not a very well-connected person. So, so let's take that off the, off the table right off the bat. Um, but it's interesting. You, you do mention like per, uh, projects and personal projects. And basically that's the root of this whole project, this whole, this whole thing. Uh, back in, um, 2008, uh, we adopted a, a baby girl. Uh, this is, this is going to make sense here in a second. So <laughs> it's kind of a roundabout way. But, um, uh, and I had been doing lots of kind of boring, kind of commercial, some good editorial work and so on and so forth. But once you have a kid, like your whole world is kind of is, you know, focused on that being and keeping it alive. And those first three months are horrible because you don't have sleep and you're, you're constantly worrying and so on and so forth. And after a couple of months of, uh, you know, I, when she was like six months a year or whatever, it was like, I kind of needed to do a project for on my own for myself just to kind of feel like a, like a, an independent person again. Right. Cause you're completely tethered to this little being. Uh, and I just was like, okay, well, I'm going to go, I'm going to book a trip to New York, a long weekend. Uh, and I'm just going like, to kind of reach out to some people that I think that I admire and uh, I really ex respect their work and just kind of see if they'll let me like hang out and take some portraits and, you know, kind of talk to them that way. And I was surprised. I just randomly cold emailed uh, and that cold call, but cold email, a couple of people that I really respected. And I was just shocked that people would respond to me and, and want to talk to me and, and give me an hour or two of their time. Um, so over the over the you know next two years or so, I just kind of did that every now and then. Every couple of months, I would just take a long weekend and uh, book a trip somewhere and just kind of see if I could photograph some people just for myself. There was no book in mind at all on this. Uh, and then my mother-in-law was like looking through some of the pictures and she's like, you know, this would make a good book. They weren't all musicians, by the way. It was it was writers. It was uh, painters. It was there was an architect in there. Just people that I thought were did some really cool work. So I tried pitching Matt as a book uh, about creative people uh, and I got turned down everywhere. Everybody just turned me down and I'm like, oh, maybe this wasn't meant to be. One person, there was a picture of Dave Wakeling from the English Beat in that book. And um, I mean, in that, in that initial pitch and somebody was like, pulled it out and said, you know, you should just focus on one thing, like this picture of Dave Wakeling and then maybe just do a book on 80s musicians and kind of what they're doing and so on and so forth. And I was like, that's a great idea. I'm a huge music fan. I really would love to do that. But again, 
not very well connected. So I just kind of like, you know, filed it away in the back of my head as like, oh, that would be a cool idea, but it's never really going to come to fruition. But then it was random happenstance, like a month or two later, I got a phone call from uh, this woman named Valerie, who was in a band in the 80s called New Shoes. And they had a big hit with uh, I Can't Wait. Look it up on YouTube and you'll be singing it the rest of the day. Uh, but she called me up and she's like, you know, we're getting our band back together and going on the nostalgia tour. We've got a really, you know, we've got this big band that we're going to be working with. Can you come down to Portland where they were based uh, and do our group photos for, for this particular project? And I said, yeah, I'd love to. And then um, I was like, I kind of had this idea. I was kind of talking to them. I had this idea for this 80s book. And they were like, oh, well, you know, Martha Davis from the from the motels is down here and uh, Tommy Two-Tone and Bill from Animotion. So like all these people were down in Portland. But I had no idea there was this like little 80s hotbed. So that kind of got the the ball rolling on on the 80s book. And from there, you know, we just did 40 plus uh artist and uh did a lot of cold emailing got you know lots of rejections but i got lots of people that did want to kind of hang out and talk and uh and so that's how the 80s book got started and then of course logical follow-up would be the 90s so i started on that right after that 80s book was published and it's a lot easier because you've already got one book published so you can show here's the kind of photos i do here's the presentation correct. um you can show that it's a serious project yes correct so, so when I did the 80s book, it was a publisher over in, in, on the East Coast, and uh, they were good to work with. But marketing-wise, I this is a whole other side of the business. Like if you create – as a photographer, yeah. as an artist, if you're creating books, you're not making money. It's just, just – you're just not. No. Uh, and marketing – I was very unaware of how the publishing industry worked because I'm, you know, that was not my in my wheelhouse of things that, that did that. But if you're going to do something like this, you have to be prepared to do most of the marketing on your by yourself. You know, like my initial marketing person at the at the first publisher, I mean, she couldn't have been more than 23 years old. She had no idea about the music or what that audience is. Uh, you know, she sent me to to uh, interviews with like cool jazz stations in Sonoma. And like, yeah, this isn't really the audience for the book. <laughs> it was very, oh, and the worst, though, was this heavy metal podcast thing and that guy was just he was not very pleasant to me because he got a copy of the book and there's not a lot of heavy metal in there there's no heavy metal in there so he, he was very he was just as confused as i was so uh you, you got to be prepared to like really put a lot of the work in um on yourself as veterans of writing and publishing books jeff and i you know um, have each a couple of dozen books and uh, it's just the publisher they'll like you for a month <laughs> and then the next month's titles come out and they have to like someone else. Unless you're really selling right off the bat, you get forgotten quickly. One thing I like in the book is it's not a before and after. You don't have pictures of the people in the 90s. And a lot of these people aren't making music anymore. And some of them sound like they're satisfied. I noticed that there was one who opened a bookstore in Seattle. And there are others that have done a variety of things, moved around. Some have made music and some haven't. I kind of find it interesting to look back, in this case, 30 years um, later, to see what's happened to these musicians that, well, I didn't know them, but they were obviously well enough known that many people did, and to see what their careers have become. Not every band can be the Rolling Stones, right? Yeah. And a lot of these musicians, they have a few years, and then they go do something else because they really want to do something yeah. else. And that's kind of the point of the books, too, as I was getting into it. It was 
you know, I would meet these people and yeah, they're not 26, 27 years old on the top of the billboard charts or having a hit single or whatnot. Uh, but they're still doing really interesting, creative things. They're still really happy uh, with the things that they're doing. And I just wanted to kind of shine a light on that, uh, that these are are people whose best days are not behind them. They're, you know, they're still living their best lives as they can. And, it, you know, it's interesting on the 80s book when we were putting that together. I was thinking about, you know, licensing some archival images from the 80s, showing that these people were like then. But then it was just like, you know, I don't I'm not going to do that. I think. I think the, the the point of this more is is to show yes it's rooted in the past but it's really grounded in the present and here's what these are not has-beens or these are not whatever they're still lead, leading very interesting fulfilling creative lives and I really kind of wanted to put the put the keep the focus there as opposed to you know looking into the past so that's interesting yeah. that you picked up on that too yeah did did you have a plan to not make the photos look like album cover photos? <laughs> yes, it was definitely <laughs> because none of them do. <laughs> yeah, there, yeah, I definitely wanted to kind of keep away from stereotypes uh, of that nature. Um, and I'd taken this uh, this photo workshop at one point with a photographer named Chris Buck, who's a great photographer, and I totally love his work. Uh, and it, you know what I what I took from that is you know you just got to take the picture for yourself and do something interesting with it and kind of avoid the cliches. And I spent a lot of time trying not to think about those kinds of things, or I want to create warm, organic photos, not necessarily like here's the band against the black, uh, you know, the, the brick wall or whatever. I was trying to, I was definitely trying to push it a little bit more into, into keeping it a little bit more human, I guess, and less rock star. That also affords a new sense of discovery because if they're just trying to do the same poses that they were in. I mean, the challenge with this, I don't know, I guess genre is that I have memories of some of these bands from the 90s and then you don't hear about them or, you know, they don't release anything new. And so that just gets sort of frozen in ember. And so when you are coming back to somebody, unless they're a band who's trying to go on like a reunion tour and they're dressing up like they used to because that's what the audience expects. But you always get a sense that they're really just doing that for the stage. They're not – they probably don't live like that. And so some of them, you get a sense that some of them do still kind of live like that and some of them are, are completely different people. Yeah, That's the nice thing about this is because – you have to reevaluate and then make your own mental connection of, oh, right, I remember like maybe seeing them in a club or something when they were 25 and they're obviously different people than, than they were then because it's such a strange like hyper experience to go through that at that age. Yeah, yeah. And – most of the, most of these artists would just invite me into their homes, uh, which is you know they're comfortable there, they're relaxed. You know, I'm not usually super relaxed because I'm trying to like I've never been here before. I'm trying to like think of a good idea and try you know, but uh, but that that definitely helps kind of take away some of that rock star sheen, I guess, is that they're in their own natural environment or whatnot. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm thinking of like the Martha Davis picture from uh, in the '80s book. You know, she's she runs a farm. So, you know, we're out there hanging out with her goats, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, which is, you know, a far cry from, from the 80s when she's in those, you know, really glossy music videos all done up to the, the nines and so on and so forth. It's a good point because 
music from the 80s and the 90s was in music videos. Music from the 1970s wasn't. So while we have photos of The Clash and The the Cure before they got all gothed out and bands like that, we don't have the video footage. So anyone in the 80s and the 90s made all of this stuff that you remember from the videos, right? Like... Who doesn't remember Billy Idol's sneer from MTV, right? You see a picture of him today and he still looks like that without the (laughs) sneer. Or Adam Ant or, you know, people from the early MTV days when they were establishing a brand. Each band was establishing a brand. Um, So you've got – if you're familiar with the music of that decade, you've got these images in your mind. And they're kind of like ghosts behind as you're seeing what these people look like now. Yeah, yeah. One thing that I'm curious about is you mentioned, you know, being out with the goats. Uh, when you went to somebody's house or wherever they were, did you have an idea about what sort of shots you wanted to take or were you just figuring that out as you went along? I'm trying to figure out like how much of this was spontaneous and how much of this was just looking at your environment and figuring, OK, I've had a really good conversation. Why don't we, you know, position you sort of like next to this hedge or behind this little bit of uh, drapery or something like that? Yeah. So uh, I would go into most of it pretty blind because I wouldn't, you know, I would never have been in their home before, and I, I had no idea what I was getting into. So I had to think on the fly. I would come prepared. I would have my light kits. Uh, I would have uh, everything set, ready to go. But I had to be cer- certainly very flexible about what I was doing. And it was also, you know, a matter of sometimes I didn't have a ton of time with each of the artists. Um, you know, you have a certain time frame that you have to use or uh, and there were a handful, actually, that I I shot at locations where they were doing ban- uh, shows. Um, mm-hmm. And in that case, you've got like 10 minutes. So, like I said, I like to kind of get prepared and be ready for anything. Um, I, I usually go early. I'll scout around. If I'm going to their house, I'll walk around the neighborhood. Uh, I'll get there, you know, an hour earlier or so, just kind of look around, kind of see if there's some backup ideas. Uh, sometimes those kind of things don't work. Um, like I had, I was in London actually photographing, uh, doing a bunch of shoots there. It was kind of a crazy day. And one of the artists had a schedule change and needed me to come sooner rather than later. Again, not really familiar with where I am. I had to run across town and uh, I was scouting out the, everything while I was there because I still had a little bit of time. Uh, so I'm looking around, I'm looking around, looking around like, oh, I can shoot this, I can do this. And then I'm like, that's it. I'm going to do this. I'm going to have him do this. Uh, and then he comes out and I'm like, uh, I'm like, okay, well, let's go over here. And like, I have this idea over here. And he's like, oh, I can't. I have a car over here and uh, I haven't paid the meter. So we need to go in this opposite direction. Uh, and then I need to go. So so I didn't have a lot of time. So like I had to, I'm like, I'm not going to shoot him by his car or like feeding his meter or whatever. It's like, so we're walking and we're walking and I'm like, crap, I'm trying to think really fast. And like, I don't have, I don't have a lot of time. This isn't going to work. My idea that I loved was back there. I have to throw that away. That's not going to work right now. And, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I ended up, you know, <laughs> I, I saw this little courtyard. I, Came back there. We took five minutes. I, I loved what ended up happening. It was better than the idea that initially happened. Um, but you just kind of have to kind of think fast and, and and you know, just try not to just take a mug shot or, you know, a prison shot or whatever. But like I said, I, I just come prepared and I just, I'm just ready for anything. And uh, uh, what happens, happens, you know, just, yeah. and actually that kind of works really well because I feel like in the past when I have, uh, when I've like pre-planned things in my head, they never turn out how I 
expect it to. And then I get really disappointed in the result. I'm like, oh, I wish I should have done this or I could have done that better or, you know what I mean? But if, I, if I'm moving really spontaneously, I found over the years that that is really a style of shooting that actually really works for me. And I'm much happier with the results other than a ton of advanced planning and like, this is how the image is going to be. Right. And real quick, you mentioned a light kit. Can you just give us an idea of, of what that entailed? I mean, is that something you're just carrying around all the time or is it just like a strobe at the end of your arm kind of a thing? I have done that before, um, but I just have like a, a quick little um, Bogan lighting setup, just a one light usually, unless there's a couple of different people. And then I'll, I have a, I have two lights usually. Very minimal. Like I said, I'm usually carrying this kind of stuff around with me. Uh, to London or to wherever I'm going. So it's I, I kind of have to, to pack light. I always get stopped in airports. They don't understand what these things are. <laughs> you know, like you have that, you have like, you, you know, your light source and then it's like, what is this? And it's like, oh, I'm a photographer. See, it goes on this this light stand. And they never call it a light stand. They're like, oh, well, you have a tripod. How do you put, it's it's all <laughs> going through, going through uh, customs and stuff like that is always a pain in the ass on that kind of stuff. But um <laughs> Uh, I make it work and uh, it does work. Usually I, I generally prefer, if I can, natural light, um, uh, but I have to be prepared to have a light source with me. Sure. What sort of cameras and lenses do you use for this? I'm all Canon. A Canon Mark II is what I use. Uh, I was telling Jeff earlier, I, I'm not a huge gearhead. I have always been a Canon guy. I've stuck to a Canon guy. I'm not the guy that runs out to... You know, somebody asked me yesterday, I'm like, oh, you're going to go get a new mirrorless kit and all this other stuff. And I'm like, I'm such, I'm such a creature of habit. And I just like the familiarity. And particularly, you know, like I said, I'm working spontaneously. I like to know where my knobs are. I like to know where if I need to change the aperture or, or you know, really quickly, I can just do all that stuff without really even thinking about it. My fingers just go there because, you know, the Canon setup has been you know, the, where the knobs and buttons are. Minor changes over the years, when you upgrade from whatever to whatever. Um, but like I said, I don't really invest a ton of money in, in investing in new equipment every year because it's just like, I have my my thing. It works for me. You know, I've got a small, like a 50 millimeter lens. Uh, I've got a, another zoom lens that I'll use. Um, but other than that, I don't usually have a huge you know, kit. On the 90s book, some of the stuff, that I was plotting in my head was happening during the pandemic when everything was kind of shutting down. It turned out I did do a couple of the shoots during that time period. And it was, I was able to kind of slow things down a little bit because everything slowed down. Right. So at that point, I actually, and no one was going anywhere. I, anyway. I but at that point I did actually pull out this camera that I have it's about a hundred years old. It's a four by five view camera. And I, I bought some expired Polaroid uh, type 69, six, six, five. Can't remember now. Um, Bought some expired, you know, Polaroid negative film, the black and white Polaroid negative film. Uh, and just wanted to kind of experiment with that since everything else was slowing down. And I did get some really good results out of that. But yeah, so every now and then I'll, I'll push myself out of the comfort zone and, and you know, try something different and new. But for the most part, like I said, I'm just a, a basic camera guy. You know, I have camera, yeah. I have lights. That's all I really need. For the ones that you were shooting with film, were those some of the portraits that are in the book? What would be an example of one of those? From the live through that book, there is there's a couple. There's there's Mark Pickerel from the Screaming Trees. Uh, he was shot with that camera. Uh, Braden Blake from Super Deluxe was shot with that camera. There may have been one other that one or two. Oh, Scott McCoy from the Young Fresh Fellows. That was a good one. And that was one of those cases where you know he had had a stroke. 
just before the the pandemic, he was not wanting to be close to anybody because uh, he was taking lockdown really seriously. Yeah, um, and uh, and he's one of the ones. His music actually just seemed to really go with the vibe of that camera that I was using and the style and the aesthetic. So I'm like, I really want to shoot him with this this thing. But you you know, I, I'm limited with my lenses on that and. I had to stay away from him because he didn't want me any closer than six feet. We had to shoot outside, but man, that was, that was a great, you know, I had these parameters and oh, so I shot him on his porch and his front and his side yard that I had the camera. It it had just snowed too. So it was all icy. I had to, you know, I had this big bulky camera. I had to set up the tripod. I had to make sure that it's like, stable on this icy thing and myself not falling down because it was fairly steep but it ended up working i'm really happy with it and again it's like that's a case of like your your tool like matching the aesthetic of the the person that you want to shoot i just thought that that you know obviously that 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 kind of setup wouldn't work for everybody you know but for his music all old school kind of you know it just felt right. So <laughs> I'm really glad that actually worked out because, yeah. Awesome. So what's next? You've done the 80s and the 90s. You're going to do the 70s maybe. There's still a lot of 70s musicians alive. No, no. I can't do any more books. It's like I put a lot I put a lot of time and effort and care into those. And I just – it's just – like I said earlier, there's not a lot of – it's a tough haul. And I'm not a super great marketer. That's not really my skill set. And I find that I have to do a ton of that kind of work and I'd rather not be doing that kind of work. <laughs> so and it takes up yeah. a lot of time just to get a couple of books sold. And and it just seems like even from the 80s to the 90s book, like the amount of content that's out there in the world, it's like, gosh, nobody, it's hard, it's hard, hard, hard to like rise above the the flood of content that's out there. Even trying to get, you know, press and PR and you know, you're you're offering, oh, I'll give you an excerpt of the book, you know, blah, blah, blah. But even that kind of stuff, it's like nobody wants to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Stuff. Okay. Mike Hipple, um, your book is called Lived Through That and not I Lived Through That, <laughs> musicians from the 90s that I've never heard of. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. This is a really fascinating project and it's too bad you can't do more. And I understand about the problems with marketing, but it is really interesting to look at these people afterwards and see what they've become. Yeah. I, I had a great time doing both of the books. Thanks for having okay. me. Thanks for joining Excellent. us, Mike. Thanks for having me. Okay, Jeff, time for our snapshots. What have you got this week? So I'm going to talk about an iPhone app, actually iPhone, iPad, Mac, uh, because I am one of those people who has abandoned Twitter for the most part. I didn't delete my account, but uh, I've basically put more of my focus onto Mastodon. And Mastodon is this uh, big collection of federated sites, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There are lots of different places where you can go and, and, and learn how to get on. But one of the things that's been missing so far is a really good app to view it on. So I've recently started using an app called Ice Cubes. Now, there are, I think, maybe 20 different apps in development and some have uh, private betas and I, I haven't really put enough effort into trying to get into those. But Ice Cubes, I find, is so far the closest that I've used that is the closest to Twitterific, which was my favorite Twitter client. I basically only used Twitterific and it allowed me to not see any ads and not 
be subject to the whims of Twitter's weird algorithms. It was a beautiful thing and Twitter killed all their third-party support. So I'm finding that Ice Cubes is a really good replacement for that experience of reading small Twitter-like posts and it's been really good. I think we should put our Mastodon handles in the show notes because we both use Mastodon. I still use Twitter because I need to get this information for my work. Um, I've been using Ivory, which is a Twitter client that I think is just going live today. We're on the 24th of January oh, good. by the developer of TweetBot. Now, I, I too was a Twitterific user and I was very sad that I couldn't use that anymore for Twitter. And now I have to use um, Space Karen's app with all of its problems and everything. And I, I kind of miss Twitter, but Mastodon is starting to um, get some momentum. And I think it will be interesting for those of us who don't want to be in that dumpster fire that is Twitter. Exactly. Okay. What do you have this week? Well, I have a new computer and it's in a box and I haven't had time to open it today. I got a new Mac Mini. Oh. Um, the, the Mac Mini actually just shipped today, the 24th of January. I had been thinking for a while of replacing my NAS with a Mac Mini because I can't understand the software on the NAS. I always have to hook things up when I need to do anything. Whereas with a Mac, screen sharing, I know how to use it, settings, boom, really easy. I had thought about the Mac Mini, but I thought, well, it's two years old, don't want to buy one. And then all of a sudden, they announced a new one last week. Now, I bought the cheapest one, $599 in the U.S., 8 gigabytes RAM, 256 SSD, because all I'm using it for is to make a file server. It will take Time Machine backups from my uh, MacBook Air. It will run my Plex library, store some other files on external drives. It's a really bare bones thing. But what's interesting is in all the reviews of the Mac Mini that I've seen, which came out Monday, yesterday... Everyone's pointing out how it's the ideal Mac that's not quite the Mac Studio, but is almost the Mac Studio. Now, we talked about the Mac Studio a couple months ago. We'll put a link in the show notes to our episode. It's a bit expensive. The Mac Mini didn't have the faster processor, but now it does with the M2 and the M2 Pro options with more cores and RAM and storage and everything. And if you thought the Mac Studio was kind of what you wanted for your photography Mac, but too expensive, now you can get the Mac Mini. And it's a huge price point. Uh, I think the base model Mac Mini starts at $599. The high-end model starts at $1299. And of course, you can add more RAM and storage to make it more expensive. So you're below that $2,000 benchmark for the Mac Studio, and you can really do choose what you want with all the different upgrades. Um, I, I've had a couple of Mac Minis over the years. What's funny is it looks exactly the same as the first Mac Mini. Maybe the color's a bit different, but the shape is exactly the same. It's, it's an appliance more than a computer. Um, and it, it can be your principal computer, but it can also be a little server that you stick in a corner that does, you know, really simple tasks. So new Mac mini, that's my choice. Sounds great. Okay. Until next time, Jeff. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash photoactivecast. That's photoactivecast in one word. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. 
And think about leaving us a rating or review on iTunes or in your podcast. 